Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Australia has a great tradition of investigative journalism and reporters don't come any better than our guest for the On The Record podcast this edition than Hedley Thomas. Hedley famously revealed the horrors of Queensland's doctor death, operating on people without proper medical training. While his latest investigation became a global podcast sensation called The Teacher's Pet, resulting in an ongoing court case and about to be made into a Hollywood blockbuster. It's, it's been an accidental success in many ways, but uh, uh, the storytelling, even for an old dog like me who looks much better on a podcast than television, it can work. And, and um, I think that this is what I want to do from now on. Um, Thank you, everybody here. Well, this episode features someone who could easily be described, I think, as Australia's most successful and pioneering podcaster. Now, he freely admits when he took on the investigation into what became known as the teacher's pet that he had no idea about producing audio rather than words on a page as a traditional journalist. Hedley Thomas is a seven-times Walkley Award winner. He's been inducted into the Melbourne Press Club Hall of Fame and is again working, intriguingly, on yet another investigation podcast. Headley, welcome. G'day, Steve. You've come a long way since starting off as an errand boy on the Gold Coast Bulletin, haven't you? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, look, I think it's been um, a very fortunate career. Uh, I started as a 17-year-old at the Gold Coast Bulletin as the copy boy straight out of high school. We didn't have schoolies in those days. You you got a job or went to uni soon after leaving school. And uh, I just um, had a very fortunate break in, in, in getting this job as the copy boy because I wanted to be a journalist and I didn't know whether I could cop you know, three years of, of uni in Brisbane, uh, far from the waves. Interesting you say that because I started as a copy boy straight out of high school as well. You and I are very lucky that News Limited employed us, but uh, neither of us uh, went through an, a university education. You can't do that these days. And I think that's uh, probably something that has been lost to the profession of journalism, that you don't have street smart kids just coming straight out of school. Steve, I think it is a loss. And I believe that a lot of journalists who have come through the way you came through and I came through have actually been, in some cases, obviously, you know, a lot of university graduates have been outstanding journalists, but a lot of the copy boy journalists have um, been more rounded in many ways. And uh, I think if they've come through the newspapers that way, they've also had a really good insight into how the different parts of the, the newspaper business fit together. Uh, because as the copy boy, you're running around the advertising section, the photography section. Um, you're out the back with the comps who are doing, you know, the um, the the page the page design and, and setting, uh, and uh, you dealt with management, and you saw how everybody worked together. Uh, but I also think you got a fair bit of common sense drilled into you along the way, uh, rather than being taught by university academics, many of whom have never worked in journalism. I mean, that's the weird thing. They've, they've um, particularly now, it seems there's a, a, a relatively small number of, of journalism teachers 
with practical journalism experience, and, and that's a real shame. I was taught by blokes who had a cigarette hanging out of their mouth saying, get downstairs, feed my parking meter, and go and get me a toasted ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Uh, I, uh, I was a target, like many copy boys, of lots of practical jokes. You know, you'd be asked to go to photography and pick up a long weight. Go and get, go, and go for a long weight. You know, and I'm like, okay, where's the long weight? You know, <laughs> it'd take you 20 minutes to realise that was the long weight. Was it a pretty aggressive tabloid back in 1984, wasn't it? The Gold Coast Bulletin? Yeah, it was. And uh, a very profitable, successful tabloid. The advertising sections were chockers with, with real estate ads and, and classifieds. Uh, you know, some, some Saturdays it was a, you know, a house brick weight because of the, uh, the number of ads and supplements in there. And, uh, you know, it, it was um, a busy newsroom. There were many journalists uh, employed to, to cover, you know, a fast-growing city. Uh, and that was before the Gold Coast really spread out, uh, you know, up the, uh, the motorway towards Brisbane and farther south and west. So it was a, it was a great grounding. And, and I was just so lucky to stay there until about the middle of 1988. So I had a good four years there. Luck does come into a lot of uh, journalistic careers. I think you've made your own luck. Let's go back a bit. You were born in Texas. Uh, yes. Your dad, who you were very close to, I, I know, and sadly he passed away not that long ago. Why mm. Texas? Dad uh, uh, was then in the Royal Australian Air Force uh, and he was a pilot. And he he, he was a very good pilot. He'd, he'd flown uh, – jets and then helicopters, including um, in the Vietnam War. And uh, soon afterwards, uh, he was seconded to go to Texas on behalf of the Royal Australian Air Force to teach US Air Force pilots uh, how to fly various aircraft, including Gee. including choppers, yeah. and the uh, That's a big feather in his bow to, to be at the Americans <laughs> yeah. to ask you to do anything. Yeah, look, I'm sure that's right, and and he he revelled in it, and, and you know really enjoyed that experience um, from everything he's told me about it, and I've got his original log books from from that period. But the Air Force Base was called uh, Shepherd Air Force Base, and it was um, in the north of Texas in a town called Wichita Falls, and uh, I think there's a lot of tumbleweed around around there, and uh, some. Some long runways for uh, for aircraft, and and, uh, and it was great for helicopter training. And so we lived there. Mum and Dad um, uh, had one child, my sister, and uh, and then Mum um, was um, pregnant with me while we were there. And I was born, and just a few months old when we came home. Sounds like that movie that traced the first American to orbit the Earth. They had that base out. Have you ever seen that film with the base out in the middle of the desert and they were all gung-ho uh, pilots who ended up, test pilots who ended up being astronauts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think Dad would have loved to have been an astronaut. He, he's <laughs> just in awe of those guys. He spent a lot of time gazing at the stars. Uh, he's also a, uh, an astronomer in his spare time, an amateur astronomer, so that would have been perfect for him. What influence did he have on you? I think um, very profound influence because he he taught me how important it was to try to be as objective and factual as possible, even though that would often mean 
taking on um, causes or going up against people who who were sometimes you know emotionally wedded to an idea but didn't have the facts to back them up. And so Dad being a pilot, facts um, in, in flight, physics, uh, measurements, data, it's really important. You need to know exactly what altitude you're flying at, not what you feel, you know. And I think so much of journalism um, necessarily must be grounded on on fact and measurement and, and objective truth, not, not feeling. And uh, regrettably, particularly through the sort of whole um, social media uh, phenomenon, so much of journalism has become about what journalists feel and what they think is the sort of fashionable cause to be um, helping promote rather than what the, the, the facts and the, and the findings and, and the detail is, is underlying. And, uh, and my father, you know, was constantly on about this, about the biases that, you know, can, can lead journalists astray as they can lead pilots astray if they don't rely on their instruments, on the, on the, on the data. Uh, so that was, that was important. Yeah, it's a um, really yeah. interesting point you make, because, and you do have to have understanding uh, editors to, to actually allow that to prosper because what you're saying is you were so precise about detail and fact, it takes a long time, right? You can't, this is not yes. stuff you knock out in a day. The, these longer investigations, and we're going to talk about a couple of them in a moment, requires the patience of the people paying you to make sure you've got enough time to do it properly. Yes, that's right. And, and that's a big investment. And I think uh, for many journalists, they're not really suited to that sort of commitment. Um, but their employers similarly wouldn't have the patience or tolerance for that. But I also believe, Steve, that when you were um, a young newspaper journalist and I was a young newspaper journalist, the media was far less um, polarised by by politics and by um, left-right um, themes. There seemed to me at least, and I hope I'm not looking at this through, looking back through rose-coloured glasses, but there seemed to me to be a, a much more definite separation of, of the, the political commentary from the, uh, the objective news commentary. Uh, news, oh, news 100%. And the, and the company that we work mainly for, News Limited, um, would often editorialise both ways in state and federal election campaigns. I mean, people demonise yeah. Rupert Murdoch. I mean, goodness me, he's given more journalists and more journalism a chance to flourish in this country than anyone else. And... You know, he started the Australian newspaper and look at the Australian has said, vote Whitlam, don't vote Whitlam, vote Fraser, don't vote Fraser, vote for Howard, vote for Rudd. I mean, you know, and you're in the middle of the, the Kevin Rudd election, you know very well uh, that, that that's what happened. But back when you and I started, you couldn't pick the political bias of the papers. Many, many journalists are in a bit of a bubble with Twitter um, particularly. And on Twitter, there's a very distorted, Perspective of, of Australian politics and Australian life that I don't think is a, is an accurate depiction of the reality. 
Let's move on. Uh, you go to the Career Mail from the Gold Coast Bulletin and then, I mean, you must have impressed somebody because you get posted in 1989 to London. Now, the London posting was what all of us in newsrooms run by news wanted. It, it, did it feel like you were going to the centre of the world? <laughs> it really did. I, I couldn't really believe that I'd landed that role because I'd only been at the Career Mail for one year and uh, that had meant you know, a, a move up the highway from the Gold Coast to Brisbane, uh, sharing a house with some some uh, young young women. I I um, you know I didn't know. I had just answered an ad, and then uh, I must have um, impressed somebody because twelve months later, this gig was was offered to me. And I tried to get that for ten years and didn't succeed. <laughs> Yeah, but I reckon you would have been a lot more expensive than me, Steve. And, and <laughs> I, I think that was a big consideration in my appointment. But, but here I was, you know, 22 and as cheap as chips to sort of send over with no dependents, no children, obviously. And, and uh, uh, my allowances and so on would be pretty pretty slim and I'd be up for anything. And I was. It was just such an exciting time. But I hadn't been, although I'd obviously been born in Texas, uh, I was a baby when I came home and I hadn't gone overseas. We're talking about a period, the 80s, when you know Australians were really fortunate to travel overseas. It wasn't the thing that it is today. And, and so I had my only travel as an adult overseas had come just some months before I went to London and it was a, um, it was a, a holiday sort of junket sponsored by uh, Continental Airlines to Guam, and it was led by our good friend Ben Fordham's father, John Fordham. <laughs> yes, the, uh, uh, Continental Airlines turned out to be rather dodgy, and it cost the governor of uh, Victoria at the time, a bloke by the name of Murray, uh, his job because he'd been taking free air, free airfares from Continental like you. Oh, well, I thought it was the greatest thing <laughs> ever. I mean, a young journo in the editor said, oh, we've got this uh, opportunity for – for a, what they called it, it was a familiar, yeah, familiarization, a famil, you know, yeah, to, right. to write about Guam. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we flew all the way there, flew back, and then the next thing I knew, I was on a Qantas uh, flight to uh, to London, and a and a friend of the uh, the company or a friend of the chief of staff who, who had um, moved into Qantas said, "Oh, I'll upgrade heavily the business," <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was uh... in the bubble. It was unbelievable. We were all trying to get upgrades back then. Don't let you. Don't worry about that. Nineteen eighty nine. You're in London, and the Berlin Wall comes down, and you you get sent to cover this. Now, I always laugh because there was another news limited reporter there on that famous night. He was from a current affair based in New York by the name of Gordon Elliott. Used to be host of GMA on Channel Ten in Australia. He was uh, doing great work on a current affair in America. He thought the pictures of the wall coming down weren't quite dramatic enough, so he went down to a hardware store and bought a pickaxe and gave it to some young German instead said, start hitting the wall because we need some <laughs> decent TV pictures. What was it like being there that night? Oh, look, it was uh, incredible. And, again, you know, we talk about the luck that you have in journalism. I really shouldn't have been there but for the fact that um, – the, the UK Foreign Office were organising at that time familiarisation trips for foreign correspondents in London to to uh, East and West Germany. 
And this was a program that had been going on for years. And, and so Murray Hedgeco, who was in charge of the London Bureau, said, oh, Hedley, would you like to do that? I said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thanks. And it was during that study tour sponsored by the Foreign Office and the East and West, well, the West German government, that uh, it all started unraveling. And, of course, we broke off from the study tour. I bet you did. And all rushed to uh, Berlin and stayed there and just filed and filed. But it got pretty weird because um, Rocky Miller, who was then the editor of the Daily Mirror in Sydney. Legendary Rocky Miller. Legendary. He had this... uh, this idea that, that we could um, uh, obtain several tons of Berlin Wall <laughs> by organising for some dodgy characters to to go out and and use diamond saws and whatever else they needed to cut it up and then freight it back to Sydney where it would be divided into many thousands of pieces and, and the pieces offered to readers as a sort of special souvenir of the wall. Who has a um, weird idea like that? Rocky Miller, <laughs> and it became front page of the Mirror over oh. several days. This operation, and who do you think was asked to lead the uh, the, the the operation? I mean, uh, I thought it was hard enough covering the story and getting across all the angles and, and understanding the, the 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 history of the war. Uh, but imagine then trying to also talk to um, some some West Germans about this kind of assignment, which, you know, these days would probably uh, lead you to be a star on Media Watch for successive weeks, and not in a good way. Would it ever. <laughs> uh, so you then take a bit of a diversion. You end up in uh, in Asia, in Hong Kong, uh, and then you get into the next 20 years of your career, and I'm going to go through some of the names in a moment. Just in Hong mm-hmm. Kong, um, you've watched closely those protesters there uh, putting their middle finger up to the communist government. What do you? How do you think that's going to end up? Well, I went back to Hong Kong. I've been back a number of times since I worked there for the South China Morning Post through the 90s. I we were there for six years. And, and, and that was in the lead up to the handover and after the handover. And then in November uh, last year, so it's November 2019, I went back and covered those protests. And, and I was um, shocked in a really bad way at how violent and um, anarchistic these protesters were um, and and their their behaviour towards other Hong Kongers who simply wanted to open their small shops, their dai-pai-dongs or get to work um, in assaulting quite viciously, quite brutally the, um, the, the you know, just ordinary Hong Kong people was, was something else and, and it was a side of the story that wasn't well covered. I'm afraid that the the, the protest movement, starting with a good cause, was hijacked by um, very hardcore um, uh, agitators and troublemakers who wanted to, I think, try and start a contagion across China. But in the process, um, ended up uh, doing billions of dollars of damage to Hong Kong and its economy and, and ordinary people. And, and that's then... Um, sadly, led to the uh, the People's Republic of China, which you know Hong Kong belongs to, whether people like it or not. Hong Kong is part of China, and Hong Kong cannot survive independently of China. It relies on China for for water, for example, for every amenity, 
um, trade and tourism and so on. But the the uh, the ruling um, and very hardline leaders of, in Beijing have now, in response to what they've seen as just extreme anarchy in Hong Kong, um, tightened the screws, and uh, and that's that's regrettable. And I think a lot of what's happened is because of the, the extreme violence and vandalism of these protest movements, which uh, the world's media, um, to a large extent, um, while covering, didn't highlight the the, the the ugliness of it. It was like a lens was sort of changed so that the uh, really bad stuff was was airbrushed, and you only got a side of the story about um, you know freedom fighting um, democracy. Uh, protesters it was it was much more serious than that Hedley Thomas turn of the century uh, you go back to the Korea Mail and then eventually onto the Australian but some of the names here that now define the next 20 years of your incredible career Jayant Patel Tony Hoffman Mohammed Hanif and Chris and Lynette Dawson let's start with Jayant Patel dubbed Queensland's Dr Death you wrote a book of course about this case he was operating at the Bundaberg base hospital. How did you actually come across this dangerous bloke? Yeah, I um, had been uh, writing about problems in Queensland health. I'd been investigating that subject for for some weeks and Tony Hoffman contacted me about him. She was then the, the nurse in charge of the intensive care unit at the Bundaberg Public Hospital and uh, and she told me that he was a menace, and and, um, and and so many of the staff, and nurses, and other doctors were intimidated by him, but appalled at the way the patients were um, uh, performing after surgery by him. They weren't. A lot of them had very, very bad outcomes. And Tony invited me to look into it, and uh, and so I um, I went up to Bundaberg uh, quietly. You know, I didn't flag to the officials or anything that I was going and I met Tony and a, and a number of her, her nurse friends after uh, after work in in, in um, one of the nurses homes and and um, and we talked for hours about how bad he were he was as a surgeon and there was this moment Steve you know when you're doing some big stories and you can always remember a particular kind of penny drop moment where something just um, fits into place, you hear or see something and just go, oh my God, that's the answer, that's the angle. One of the nurses said, uh, you know, this is hours after, you know, after hours of description of these terrible outcomes and surgical mishaps and so on, and one of the nurses said, of course, he didn't become a bad surgeon overnight. And and I just asked her, what exactly did she mean? What do you mean? You know, and I think that's the question... So many journalists should never be afraid of asking. Don't ever worry that you're going to sort of sound like a, a bit of a fool by asking someone what exactly they mean. I do it all the time. Um, and uh, she said, well, uh, he, he's been a surgeon for, you know, 30-odd years. He's in his 50s. He didn't become this bad overnight. And I, I said, well, so you mean that he's always been a bad surgeon? He's always had issues in your view given that he's been practicing surgery all that time. She said, yeah, of course. And it just was this penny drop moment because I realized, well, he had come from the United States where he was practicing surgery to Australia, to Bundaberg, only in the last two years. 
So therefore, an examination of his surgical career in the US could determine whether or not there were red flags around his practice there. And that night in the little Bundaberg motel room, I, I could barely sleep thinking about that idea and those possibilities. And I couldn't wait to get back to Brisbane after the further interviews in Bundaberg the next morning um, to check it out. Back in those days, it was 2005, um, I don't think everyone was Googling everybody else at the first opportunity. It, was, it wasn't used as often as we use it no, now. You couldn't but I went, pull out your mobile phone in that little motel <laughs> and Google Dr. Patel, exactly. could you? Exactly. I, I had to go back to the office in Brisbane to do that, and uh, and so I did. Uh, and I got back in the in the late afternoon and went to my desk and and started googling him, and discovered online this extraordinary disciplinary history, um, very very bad history of of his, him being um, disciplined, struck off, barred from practicing. Um, all these types of surgery which were so relevant to what he was doing in Bundaberg. And that was always there. That was always waiting to be found. But the medical board and the, and the hospital that uh, hired him and the recruiting agency that was paid thousands of dollars to headhunt these doctors, these overseas trained doctors, they had completely failed to do their jobs. And as a result, there'd been two years of, of this conduct by a bloke who should never have been um, hired, who committed fraud and lied about his background to, to, to come and then everything that happened. and um, Yeah, it was just one of those extraordinary moments and it all, and it came about. I mean, I might have stumbled on it anyway, but I, knew, I just knew in my, in my, um, in my, uh, just, just instinctively, I knew in my heart that what she said meant that there would be this history. You don't become a bad surgeon overnight. Give no. us an example of some of the worst cases he was involved in. I mean, it, he was implicated, I think, in, in the deaths of how many people? Uh, the, at one stage, one of the surgical reports, the audit, audits suggested that, you know, he could have been, he could have contributed to the deaths of, you know, some dozens of, of patients. Um, there ended up being a lot of, conjecture and and um, uh, debating over which ones they would take to to court to have him charged with manslaughter. Uh, I remember watching the evidence because there was a commission of inquiry called a Royal Commission style inquiry into the whole saga and and um, several surgeons, one in particular uh, gave evidence about you know these horrific outcomes you know, a boy who who lost his who lost his leg after an accident? Fifteen um, year old um, boy. Yeah, Shannon Mobbs, I think he he his name was, and, and and that according to the evidence shouldn't have happened. And there were there were multiple um, um, uh, uh, cases cited by nurses and others about how how he would um, um, perform surgery in a very cavalier kind of high handed way. There was a, a great deal of arrogance in him, notwithstanding that. You know, he knew that he was barred from performing certain types of complex surgery and, and, and he knew that he'd lied his head off to get into Australia in the first place. And the doctors themselves, regrettably, Steve, um, hadn't blown the whistle, even though they gave evidence that if they had needed surgery, they would have expressly said, not him, we don't want him to perform the surgery on us. But they remained silent while he was performing surgery 
on on other unknowing members of the public, and it was the nurses who really put their um, their careers at stake. Which, given at that time, the power imbalance between a surgeon and a nurse is quite remarkable in itself. I mean, Tony yeah. Hoffman might have been in charge of, of emergency surgery at that hospital, but all nurses would have been uh, reluctant or even afraid to speak out against a, a doctor, right? They were, and when Tony did speak out internally, she was crunched by her superiors in that hospital because the hospital, like most public hospitals in Queensland at that time, had um, a a political, they were given political targets. The politicians, the health minister, um, had, had decreed that they had to cut the waiting lists. And if they cut the waiting lists, then the hospitals would... Um, um, prosper financially and would not be um, uh, coming under the scrutiny of, of, of the bureaucrats in the health department. Now, how do you cut the waiting list for surgery? Well, you just perform as much surgery as possible. And if you've got a surgeon who is just um, relentlessly um, aggressive about doing surgery and wants to do as much surgery as possible, uh, then you know, he, he's going to be looked after because he's helping to achieve the performance targets of, of the administrators of the hospital. And that's what happened with Dr. Patel. He, he was a workaholic. He loved doing the surgery. And it wasn't all bad. You know, some, some of these outcomes, no doubt, were, were fine. Like, he didn't butcher people on a daily basis, but the, the nurses saw enough, and so did some of the doctors that, that concerned them greatly. And, uh, and then we there and it went from there. Did you ever get the chance to confront him, interview him, talk to him? Yeah, uh, yes and no. I went to um, India and uh, and and talked to relations and former colleagues of his in in India, where he was a um, a trainee surgeon, where he grew up, um, in a place called uh, Jam Jamnagar, and then I went to. Um, Portland, Oregon, where he had, where he lived, and where he was working before he was disciplined and came to Australia, and I, I met former colleagues there. But um, what you find is, and I went to his home, but he, he refused to to come and talk to me. Um, I did see him when he was appearing in court. Uh, by then, um, I wasn't covering the story, but I walked across the road and I just wanted to see him, and I felt a bit. Side for him, to be honest, like you know, you imagine some of these. You imagine people sometimes who have done bad things as as just looking quite wicked, and and he just looked like a beaten man with um, slumped shoulders and his head down, and um, probably just wanted to get on with being, you know, a father or grandfather, get back to his home country, and, and so um, that was the closest I got to him. The explosion that occurred in Bundaberg was bringing together a doctor who knew no bounds as to uh, uh, the, the sort of surgery which he performed with an administrative structure which simply wasn't capable of dealing with that situation. I was embarrassed as Premier and, and more to the point I was mortified by what happened at Bundaberg Hospital. Patel instead pleaded guilty to fraud and received a suspended two-year jail term. It's been a long and very difficult journey. 
uh, I'm pleased that it's over and I'll be going back to my life and my world. Today, the people of Bundaberg got a life sentence. They didn't get justice. In 2006, Hedley Thomas gets headhunted to the Australian where you've done some of some extraordinary work. Uh, you, you're actually awarded for an investigation into another doctor, but this is a very different story. This is Muhammad Hanif. A lot of people might not have remembered Dr. Muhammad Hanif, but he was uh, wrongly accused in Australia of being a terrorist. Mm, yeah, he, he was uh, a, um, an Indian-trained doctor who, who was practicing at, practicing at the Gold Coast Hospital and living in Southport, very near where you know, I, I, I lived um, when I was doing my, when I was a copy boy and a cadet at the Borden. And um, he uh, had a second cousin um, who was involved in the terrorist attack in Glasgow in that, in that year. And uh, uh, what happened was um, the cousin had given to Muhammad the unused portion of his SIM card, which had some credit on it for using, you know, so he could make calls, excuse me, and use the data. Um, and, uh, and and Muhammad Hanif, uh, with that uh, SIM card, uh, w- w- just made use of it. But um, because of the, the, the family connection, um, the federal police in Australia and, and Asia, Asia after this attack took a very keen interest in Muhammad Hanif. Now, Asia very quickly realised that Muhammad Hanif was a, a law-abiding, upstanding, perfectly innocent, decent married man who, who was just not interested in waging any kind of violence, let alone terrorism, or anybody. You know, he, he was um, no threat to anyone. Um, regrettably, although it turned out that ASIO had tipped the Australian Federal Police off about that view um, and that finding, and, 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 and also senior ministers in the then Howard government, the AFP waged a relentless campaign of vilification and leaking against Muhammad Hanif and then charged him uh, or held him in custody for an extended period and uh, characterised him as one of Australia's um, terror threats, and you know there was even a front page in um, one of the Sunday newspapers of a building that surfaced Paradise, a high-rise building, and Muhammad Hanif had taken a photograph, a happy snap, um, with his wife and 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 uh, I think child on the sand out the front of this building, and the front page story was about how this building was now being investigated as a possible terror target. It was just a tourist snap, you know, um, but this was the, the, the level of prejudice that had been whipped up against him because of very misleading, um, deliberately misleading leaks from, from the police to try to paint him as someone he wasn't. And What pricked um, your interest in it? Why did you get in? Why did you think that this was an issue that you wanted to write about? I, I thought it was a, a curious case that just seemed a bit crook in that um, the, the evidence against him appeared really thin, but the leaks that were painting him as a terrorist looked pretty well sourced. And, you know, and, and some of those leaks resulted in stories in my own paper in The Australian. So, you know, it was, 
um, an unusual situation where uh, one of my colleagues was getting um, leaks and writing that, um, stories about Muhammad Hanif being a likely terrorist. And then I started getting involved and making my own um, discoveries about him and, and cultivating um, contacts who, who knew exactly what was going on because they had access to documents because they were they had actually become Mohammed Hanif's lawyers, although I couldn't disclose that at the time because they were confidential sources. But but I could see from the documentary evidence that the AFP had zip, and that and and that also that the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, had had significantly misunderstood what Mohammed Hanif had even explained to them about certain things. So the AFP had had, had they had a transcript of the interview with him, but then they skewed it. Um, and and the way they skewed it just made it seem like he he was dodgy, but in fact it was the reverse. So um, I remember at the time thinking, I hope I'm right about this because you know, as my dad said, um, pal, you know, you've really gone a long way out on a limb for this fellow. I hope he really is the innocent that you are suggesting that he is. And I said, Dad, I'm absolutely sure that he's been totally stitched up and it's an election year and I think that there's, you know, political purpose behind that. Um, we want to be seen to be, you know, the Australian government, I think, wanted to be seen to be tough on terror um, and, uh, and he was a, a Muslim doctor that, that uh, could fit that, that bill and it went a long way in the public's mind, that, 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 that idea they had a terrorist, but when we started highlighting the facts, and then the, and then more facts came out, and other journalists thought we'd been played on this, they all turned around, and then there was a proper inquiry into it, and it demonstrated exactly what you know we were saying, which was that Mohammed Hanif was a completely innocent dupe, and the Australian government ended up having to um, apologise to him. I remember there was a press conference that Mick Kilty attended with the then head of the Commonwealth DPP, Mr. I think Damien Bug at the time, and it was a, quite a momentous press conference because Mr. Bug was very apologetic and, and seemed quite remorseful at the situation that, that had befallen Mohammed Hanif. Uh, Mick Kilty seemed quite, um, I think, uh, resentful because it was all blown up. And uh, and he he, he was um, very different in his his opinion of it all. But it was a difficult time. Did Doctor Hanif uh, thank you? Yes, yeah, he did. And um, you know, I uh, I'm still um, looking forward to you know, having a bit of time with him. We didn't we had a couple of opportunities to meet properly, and then for one reason or another, I was away on assignment or. It just didn't happen, um, but uh, I'd like to. I'd like to do that because uh, he, um, yeah, he always he seemed like a very decent family man who who um, came to Australia with good intentions and ended up becoming this sort of internationally reviled temporarily um, alleged terrorist and. Uh, uh, just um, was very wrong. Another great example of uh, the Headley Thomas persistence. Look, you and I did a lot of radio together uh, with Andrew Bolt. We used to have uh, fun once a week. Is that what 
whet your appetite for podcasting and audio because I want to get in. I want to get into the teacher's pet in a moment, which is the most successful podcast ever produced in this country, one of the most successful in the world. But you freely admitted to me that when you disappeared off the planet, no one could find you, and you were digging away on the teacher's pet. That you had no idea what to do in regard to audio and recording and using your voice. No, I and arguably I still don't, but. Um, I, uh, you could give me some credit there for giving you some lessons and helping <laughs> Dave, you out. You, you, you did, you did, and and you actually introduced me to podcasts because um, I would listen to your program uh, by downloading the podcast from the uh, the, the, the TGB website, uh, and and that was before I was um, uh, invited to be a, a weekly and sometimes more frequent than that guest talking to you and Andrew, but I would love to, to, to download the whole program. And, and for a while when I was having trouble sleeping, um, uh, well, man, maybe this caused me to have trouble sleeping, I would actually <laughs> listen to your program uh, in bed with the earbuds in and, uh, and, and I would just end up um, uh, drifting gently into slumber. So, you know, I wanted to thank you for that too. But <laughs> it, was, um, it, was, it was a lot of fun doing those. Um, weekly crosses from from Brisbane to you guys, um, and and we had a lot of laughs, and we, we we talked about a lot of important Queensland and national events, and then when it came time for me to to attempt a podcast, um, you know, I think that uh, that that training you know definitely helped, but the 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 podcast that that I ended up um, producing with. Uh, my friend Slade Gibson, the, the audio engineer, and with the help of lots of other people, you know, it exceeded our wildest expectations. I mean, we knew that it was a, an extraordinary story, and I guess I've got to be a bit careful about talking too much about it because it's still the subject of a, um, a murder trial to be held hopefully in the next year. But um, uh, it, it, it was um, an undertaking that I thought might be eight episodes. Ended up being sixteen, um, and uh, it was it was so grueling at times because uh, unlike podcasts, most podcasts that are done for for big digs these days, you know, there's a big team on them. We didn't have anything like a team. We was just a you know, I was doing all the writing and 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 interviewing and 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 we and we didn't have time to. Uh, sit with an episode and, and finesse it and, and, and play it to lots of people for feedback in a draft form and then work out what to chop and so on. You know, sometimes we were um, producing you know, big chunks of that episode just minutes before the release of that episode. But that's what um, I think made it work because when I listened to it and I listened, I've listened to it all, <laughs> this might sound odd, but it, it's almost like you're – uh, being privileged enough to be inside Headley Thomas's brain, and while he's sitting there writing, he's speaking at the same time, and you're getting Headley Thomas's thoughts on on what was a very complex story, but uh, which was just fascinating in how it unfolded. So I think that that's a great credit to you. I must admit, the first episode I listened to, I thought, boy, Headley's voice sounds very fast. And what I didn't realise <laughs> is I was very innocent on podcast too. I had you on the wrong speed. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, I, 
perhaps uh, I also benefited from Slade Gibson uh, speeding up my voice. I don't know if he hasn't admitted to that. But it's, uh, when I have heard myself sometimes in interviews played back, I think, geez, I've got that very slow Queensland draw. I remember Mark Latham once uh, commenting in a typical Mark Latham way about you know, how I must be um, you know, uh, uh, pretty slow because I speak that slowly. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I, think, I think that um, that podcast just uh, showed me how exciting and um, uh, compelling and interesting um, for me as a journalist, you know, that kind of deep dive, multi-layered, uh, uh, long-form investigation can be and, and, and it's why I'm doing another one now. Were you happy that, that that it was an audio production only and not in print? Yeah, I I am because if it had been in print, there's no way it would have resonated with so many people, particularly women across the world. Um, the 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 feedback and the conversations I've had with many 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 women most of them are strangers until they listen to this, um, has been really powerful. And, and, it's pow- and it was powerful to them listening to the podcast because they were hearing voices that they were able to identify with. And that, not because they knew the people, but they could, they, because of experiences in their own lives, um, and again, I'll need to be a bit careful not talking about allegations yeah. and so on. But because of experiences in their own lived lives, they they were able to appreciate many of the themes in that podcast series. Now, you don't, you, you can't properly appreciate that with just a written word. No matter um, how good you, know, you are at writing. No, no. Like, you know, I've read amazing magazine features in the Weekend Australian magazine, for example, by my friends, you know, Matthew Condon and Trent Dalton and, and others. And, and they are just some of the, the best written pieces about very difficult, challenging topics you can imagine. But the emotional um, connection that you can achieve with the audio of people speaking naturally in their own voice about the same experiences that that others write about is very different. It's on another level. And I didn't properly understand that as a as a print journalist only. And and so I think that um, that made the difference. And that's why so many people who have loved newspapers are now loving um, or really appreciating that newspaper journalists applying their own Skill set and, and craft to podcasts, uh, you know, are, are doing those, and, and, and the listenership is, is lapping it up. Yeah, you've certainly started a trend. Are you still amazed at the number of people globally that downloaded the Teacher's Pet? Yeah, yeah, it's somewhere around fifty to sixty million. I haven't looked at the numbers for a long time, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, a huge number, and, and we took it down in Australia only about. Um, about almost 18 months ago because of events relating to the accused in, in Lynn Dawson's matter and in her disappearance. Um, so we took it down to to be as fair as possible to, to that accused with, with legal proceedings pending. Uh, but um, around the rest of the world, you know, it's still being 
very um, um, strongly downloaded and, and, and generating a lot of talk. Can you give us any hint about what you're working on now? I can. It's a another um, a murder um, after the disappearance of a woman whose body, sadly, has never been found and whose family you know, is also um, very desperate for, for an outcome. And, and they are um, hopeful that, um, as, with, as with the teacher's pet and, and the, the um, outcome uh, that uh, coincided with the last episode of the teacher's pet with, with uh, an accused being charged, um, they're hopeful that they will get answers. Of course, um, uh, because listeners will provide information that has been denied to the police and the family for many years, and and uh, you know I've got to know the um, the, the young woman's um, siblings um, well, and, and I've talked to a lot of their friends, and I've tried to you know retrace her footsteps and reconstruct what happened, and. And, uh, and I'm very attracted to this kind of case. Uh, I think many women who disappeared were just written off as, as runaways or not properly, they're, 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 the circumstances of the disappearance weren't properly investigated. And sadly, that, that was a feature of, of cases, um, you know, in the, in, in, in the, um, the past. Uh, and and that's the kind of case that that, that I um, I think most attracted to as a podcast journalist uh, to to try to solve. So I dare say that the next one I do after this one, um, Touchwood, you know, will be another similar case involving um, you know a, a woman uh, who's vanished, uh, almost certainly murdered. You know, who did it? Um, where is she? and try to answer those questions. Well, it's been a great pleasure to catch up with you. The last time we saw each other face-to-face was in Berlin. I wished uh, at that time we'd remembered Rocky Miller's bits of the Berlin Wall. We could have taken them back there and sold them back to the Germans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We had, uh, we had a couple of, uh, of aisles, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a great seeing you there. Uh, in fact, that, that was... Um, December wasn't it? December 2018, um, and it was just um, a couple of weeks after the end of that podcast series, Teachers Pet series, and, and I was there with Ruth and, and my children, and uh, you know, it was great seeing you in that hotel and having a having a chat, and I think you might have even given me a a, um, a few um, a few embargo uh, tips about what what might be coming in. In the, in the world of media and radio and particularly over the next year. It was a great pleasure to catch up. You are a national treasure. You are such a talent and the, the country is all the much better for having you in it. Headley Thomas, thanks a lot. Thank you, Steve. Next up, On The Record finds out what drives funny man Pete Hillier and how he coped with some of his past failures.